Good morning, TLC. So one person says to another, the Bible says you shall not murder. A second person says to the first person, well, yeah, yeah, that's true, but what about when you're killing someone in self-defense or to, to defend someone that you love? The first person says, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. The second person says, Jesus also said to buy a sword. The first person says, yeah, but then later on, Jesus said to throw away the sword because that's not how the kingdom of God is to come into this world. The second person says, well, yeah, but isn't that how the Bible ends, though, with Jesus riding on a horse with a sword with blood on it? The first person says, well, yeah, but the sword is in his mouth. The, the blood is his own blood. It's symbolic. The second person says, how do you know it's symbolic? And a third person comes in and says, you really believe this? One person says to another, everything in the Bible is true. The second person says, well, yeah, but Jesus said that the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. And he called a mustard seed the smallest seed in the world. The first person says, yeah, I know, pretty genius, right? It's one of my favorite teachings. The second person, who's a botanist, by the way, says, well, yeah, but there are other seeds in the world that are smaller than a mustard seed. The first person says, no way. The second person says, yes way, orchids, begonias, petunias. The first person says, well, well, the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the world when Jesus was living and teaching. The second person says, oh, so the Bible isn't true in all times and all places. And the first person says, well, why are you reading the Bible like a botanical textbook? And the second person says, because it helps my argument. And a third person comes in and says, you really believe this? A first person says to another, the Bible says that women shouldn't teach the Bible. A second person says, wasn't that instruction more contextual? The first person says, the Bible says it, I believe it. Second person says, but you have tattoos. The first person says, yeah, I know, thanks for noticing. Pretty sweet sleeve I just got, right? Why do you ask? Second person says, well, because in Leviticus 19, it says that you should not tattoo your body. The first person says, yeah, but that instruction was for back then. And the second person says, well, what's the difference? And a third person comes in and says, you really believe this? A first person says to another, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Bible. A second person says, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the Bible. I mean, what about the violence? The first person says, well, that, was, that violence was before Jesus. The second person says, eh, maybe, but what about the polygamy that's in the Bible? The first person says, that was just a different time. Today, I mean, polygamy is not a thing today. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. The second person says, okay, but what about the killer bear that ate children in the Bible? The first person says, there's a killer bear that ate children in the Bible? And the third person comes rushing in and says, you really believe this? For those reasons, and many mentioned that, I, or that went unmentioned, we as Christians are being asked the question, you really believe this? Others of us in the room, we're the ones asking the question to Christians. We're saying, like, you really believe this? Like, we don't get the Bible. Like, why is it leather? Why are the pages so thin? Where did it come from? Can I really trust it? We just don't like it, right? So we're asking other people the question, like, you really believe this? And then there's some of us in the room this morning who maybe for the first time are realizing we've based our lives off of a book that we've never really read. And we're asking ourselves the question, wait, 
do I really believe this? And for this reason, we're kicking off a new series this morning, exploring this beautiful book, why it does matter, and why, yes, we really do believe this. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into the Bible. Where did it come from? Why can we trust it? How do we read it? But this morning, we kick off with just establishing a baseline. What is the Bible, and why should I read it? What is the Bible, and why should I read it? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you guys 60 seconds, all right? I want you to pull out your phones. If you're a note taker, you already got your note and your pen out. Awesome. All right, I want you to take 60 seconds and to come up with a one-sentence one sentence definition or description of the Bible. All right, I'm going to give you a head start. The first three words, ready? The Bible is, okay? The Bible is, I'm going to give you 60 seconds starting now. All right, all right. Now that we're all impressed with each other's intelligence and our wordsmithing, I want to give you guys, I had a little more time and thought. I had a little more time and thought this week to kind of put something together. So I want to give you guys what I hope is a helpful definition of the Bible, a definition of the Bible that I think kind of illustrates the way that Jesus talked about and viewed the Bible, okay? This is a definition. This is not the definition. I could say so much more than this, okay? And hopefully I will this morning, but here is a definition, and it's an actual sentence. Some of you guys were all probably like saying like run-on sentences, and your language teachers would be so disappointed in you, okay? Here is a definition of the Bible. Here we go. The Bible is a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. All right, I'm going to say that again. The Bible is a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack that definition, all right? Chunk it out bit by bit and kind of zoom in on a few moments and texts in the life of Jesus to illustrate that this is how Jesus viewed and talked about the way that Jesus understood the Bible. All right, so this first bit, the Bible is a library of books, okay? I'm not actually going to do what I just said I'm going to do with this first chunk. The Bible is a library of books, and here's why. This is an observable fact about the Bible. It is a library of books. This Bible right here is not one writing. It's not one book. It's a collection of multiple writings of multiple books, and because it's a collection of writings of multiple books, there's all kinds of different genres and styles, right? So when you walk into a library, there's a section for the for the poetry, there's a section for the narratives, there's a section for the encyclopedia, there's the section where the students are acting like they're doing homework, but really they're just there to flirt with each other, right? The Bible has all those, except for the student part, right? There's all these different genres, there's all these different styles. It is a collection, it's a library, it's not just one book and one style, it's multiple books and multiple styles. This is an observable fact about the, the Bible. Now the implication here, of course, is that when you come to read the Bible, it's really helpful to know what kind of writing and what genre you're reading, right? Because you wouldn't read a cookbook the same way that you read a letter from a friend, right? You wouldn't do that unless you're a really weird friend. Like, you wouldn't do that. And so when we come to read the Bible, it's helpful for us to know the different genres and styles. That's not to say one is more important than the other, but just they are different, and so they need to be read differently. The Bible is a library of books, okay? Now, the second chunk... The Bible is a library of books that's both human and divine, both human and divine. So if you guys brought your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll have it on the screen too. 
The Bible is both human and divine. So in Matthew chapter 22, there's this moment in the life of Jesus where these, this group called the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are just like grilling Jesus. They're hammering him with these ridiculous situations, these uh, hypothetical questions. And Jesus, they're trying to catch him slipping and Jesus isn't having any of it, right? Like he's dealing with these things masterfully. And then Jesus launches an attack, sort of. He, he launches a thought-provoking question towards the Pharisees. And I want us to read this question that Jesus asks, but I don't want us to read it because we're going to dig into the actual question Jesus asks. That's a whole other sermon. But in this question, as we'll read, Jesus quotes Scripture. He quotes a psalm. And when he quotes this part of Scripture, the psalms, he actually kind of describes Scripture. So let's read here, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 44, it says this, that while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and now he's quoting the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus quotes scripture here. This is from the Psalms. And he says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? So Jesus says that that David called him Lord. So David declared this, but that it wasn't just David declaring it, that he was also speaking by or speaking in the Holy Spirit. There was divine inspiration. This was God speaking, and this was David speaking. So Jesus quotes scripture, and he acknowledges that, that this declaration, the Psalms, which is in our Bibles, it was in the, what we now know as the Old Testament, but for Jesus' day, it was the scriptures, was a human and a divine declaration together. The Bible is human and divine. Now, if you're like, what are you talking about? How does this work? Like, how could it possibly be human and divine? Well, there's a little bit of mystery here, because we're dealing with God, but I think there's an illustration that can be helpful to kind of wrap our heads around. How could the, the Bible be both human and divine? So you guys know Louis Armstrong, right? Yeah? Any big Louis Armstrong fans in the room? Isn't there? No, maybe not. I, won't. I think there's a, a kid named after Louis. He's named Louis. I don't know if he's named after Louis Armstrong. Anyway, uh, at TLC. Anyway, Louis Armstrong, famous jazz musician, right? Now, I don't think anybody or maybe rarely anybody asked Louis Armstrong, like, hey, man, is is it you or your trumpet that's playing those sweet, sweet tunes, right? (laughs) Like, everyone knew that Louis Armstrong, the the musician, was the one that kind of, his music was filled with with his breath, with his artistry, with his tune, right? But that breath passed through a trumpet, an instrument, that allowed his artistry, his musicianship to become audible. So you could ask the question, like, well, was it Louis Armstrong or his trumpet that was making this sweet music? And the answer would be both, right? And the same is true with the Bible. The same is true with the Bible. Like, there are humans who function like David as an instrument to make something that God wants to make audible, audible. God God is the one who's sort of, the way that Louis Armstrong is filling with the artistry and the tune and the, the authority and the musicianship, this is what God is doing through humans who are like a trumpet, like an instrument that are now making something audible. So is the Bible human or divine? The answer is both. This is how Jesus understood the Bible. David and the Holy Spirit together declaring this passage. All right? So the Bible is a library of books that's both human and divine, And then the last bit of the definition, it's where I want to kind of sit in this morning, is the Bible's a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. 
tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. So if you if you got your Bible open, turn back a little bit to Matthew chapter 5. So just a little bit for, uh, before chapter 22, obviously in chapter 5, Jesus is about to give a famous sermon that he gave. Uh, uh, by the way, the, uh, when I say chapter, that's a big number. And when I say verse, that's a small number. We're doing a Bible series. We should clarify that, right? All right, so chapter 5, the big number. Jesus gave this famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus knew that, that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And so the words that he would say would later be included in, in Scripture that we now know as the New Testament. And so on top of that, he knew he was about to quote a bunch of Scripture from what we now know as the Old Testament. He was going to kind of expand people's view of it. And so he stopped at, at the beginning to kind of clarify some things about his relationship to Scripture, his relationship to the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 19, I'm going to read here. Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not, when he says the law or the prophets, that's the Old Testament. At, that, at the time that Jesus is living, that's the scriptures, that's the Bible, right? Jesus says, I've not come to abolish them. I've not come to get rid of them, he says, but to fulfill them. I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So at the very end there, Jesus says two really important things about the Bible, about scriptures. In verse 18, Jesus says that the Bible is trustworthy. Did you catch it? In verse 18, he says, he says that, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen will disappear until everything is accomplished. Jesus is saying, what this thing says will happen, will happen. It's trustworthy. Jesus says the Bible is trustworthy. The second thing that he says in the next verse, in verse 19, he says that it's authoritative. The Bible is authoritative because he says here, he says that if anyone who follows these commands, they will be great in the kingdom of God. If anyone fails to submit and obey to these commands, they will be least in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying this law, the, the, the scriptures, the prophets, the Bible is authoritative. You can submit and obey to it or you cannot. And it's going to determine your, your sort of the life that you live here and in the life to come. It's authoritative. So the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. But before he says those two things, Jesus says something super radical. Did you catch it? He says in, in verse 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Which is like super radical. Jesus basically pulls up and he's like, hey, this massive story that you guys, many of you have spent your lives studying and learning, some of you memorizing, this massive story full of songs and sayings and, and visions and poems is all about me. Jesus is like, it's yours truly. It finds its fulfillment in me. That everything leads up to me and everything follows after me. Like, I'm the fulfillment, I'm the climax, I'm the turning point. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Jesus is like, I'm the Super Bowl. Everything leads up to me. Jesus is like, I'm the World Cup final. Jesus is like, I'm like uh, Iron Man putting that glove on his hand to like defeat Thanos, right? Like Jesus is like, I'm the turning point. Like everything leads up to me. I am the fulfillment. All this stuff is about me. You Marvel people are so mad at me. I just like totally glazed over that, right? Jesus is like, it's all about 
me. In the, the scriptures are fulfilled in me. Now, this isn't the only time Jesus said something like this. He said something like this a lot. In fact, he actually said something like this after he had died and rose from the dead. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, another biography of Jesus, in chapter 24, these travelers are traveling on a road to a village called Emmaus, and, and Jesus comes to them. He kind of walks alongside them. They don't recognize that it's him. They explain that they're really disappointed because they thought this guy named Jesus was, was the Messiah, the person who was going to save them. Jesus walks alongside them. He asks some questions. He kind of rips at them a bit. He, then he sits down and kind of leads them through a Bible study. Then he eats some bread with them. And then he opens their eyes to the fact that he's Jesus, raised from the dead, and then poof, boom, pow, he vanishes. He pieces out of there, right? And one of the reasons it seems Jesus does this is so that he could open the scriptures and show them the way that they all point to him. Let's read in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 27. We'll have it on the screen here. It says, oh, you know what? I have to read because I, I, I have an ESV and I did not uh, put that one in there. So he says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, just after this, Jesus would sit down with them, have a meal, and open their eyes to the fact that he was Jesus raised from the dead. But notice I said, after this. So for Jesus, at least in this moment, it was more important to first show these people the way that the scriptures pointed to him than it was to show them that he had been raised from the dead. Like, Jesus could have done this in a different order, right? Right? Like, Jesus could have been like, yo, it's me, Jesus, raised from the dead. Now, please, open your Bibles, right? Like, that's what I would have done. That's a killer intro, right? <laughs> but Jesus, instead, he's like, hey, open your Bibles. Let me show you how all this points to me. And then, hey, it's me, Jesus, raised from the dead. Jesus is the center of Scripture, the fulfillment, what it's all about. I want to read a, a lengthy quote that kind of illustrates this by a, a writer named Andrew Wilson. It's a long quote, so I'm going to have it on the screen so that you guys can follow along with me. This is Andrew Wilson just kind of illustrating the way that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He says this, he says, Jesus is the new Adam who passed his garden test by submitting to the will of the Father, crushed the snake, and gave life to dead rather than death to the living. Jesus is the new Eve the ancestor of all new life through whom the promised rescue finally comes about. Jesus is the new Abel, whose blood announces that family feuds, murder, and death are on the way out, and that future generations will be acquitted rather than condemned. Jesus is the new Enoch, who knows God, walks with him, and is not subject to the power of the grave. Jesus is the new Noah, who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and in whom humans are rescued from the judgment they deserve. Jesus is the new Abraham, who trusts God, leaves his homeland to start a new nation, and ends up inheriting the world with his galaxy of descendants. Jesus is the new Isaac, the miraculous child offered as a sacrifice out of obedience to God and rescued from death when all seemed lost. Jesus is the new Jacob, who saw heaven opened, received the promises, wrestled with God, and commissioned 12 guys to bless the nations. Jesus is the new Joseph, the beloved son who is sold for the price of a slave, abandoned and left for dead, but who remains faithful and is lifted up to the right hand of the king of the world. And all of that is just in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. You're not the center of scripture. Jesus is. 
beautiful, right? Oh, I love what Andrew Wilson says. He says, if you read the Bible as mainly about Israel or mainly about you, it's like reading with a cold heart with your eyes shut. When you discover it's mainly about Jesus and God's purposes for the nations through him, your heart catches fire and your eyes are opened. The travelers on the road to Emmaus said, did not our hearts burn as he opened the scriptures to us? The Bible is a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that lead us to Jesus. So why read it? Well, because Jesus read it. Why study it? Because Jesus studied it. Why trust it? Because Jesus trusted it. Why submit to it and obey it? You get the point. Jesus submitted and obeyed it. It's more complicated than that, but it is as simple as that. Here's the reality. We cannot truthfully say that we are followers of Jesus without reading, without studying, without trusting and obeying what the Bible tells us. And without understanding the Bible the way that Jesus understood the Bible. As a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that lead us to him. A word from God that is trustworthy and authoritative. One more Andrew Wilson quote. He says this, If Jesus says and acts like the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative and good and helpful and powerful, then I should too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Oh, even if my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Here's the deal. When we talk and when we think about the Bible, many of us begin with our questions and our confusions and our frustrations. And I get that. I literally started the message with that this morning. But oftentimes, when we start there, our gut instinct is to begin to sort of take those one by one and kind of explain them a little bit and explain the best way to interpret it and kind of just like do away, try and get rid of them, right? But the Bible is chock full of unsettling stories, unpopular teachings, eyebrow-raising miracles, and so on. And dealing with those things and and those extremely difficult, sticky questions is, is important. But when we start there, when our gut instinct is to immediately challenge and question and be confused and frustrated and try and figure out what's wrong with the Bible, we often, what happens is, we are assuming that the most important thing on the table is our questions, which probably just isn't the case. Because the Bible isn't about us. It's not about our questions. The Bible is about Jesus. And if Jesus said that that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, and if we've decided to follow Jesus, we've said that, that he is more important than me, then we also believe that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. Now hear me out. What I, what I am not trying to say that, that we, we shouldn't bring our questions and our confusions and our frustrations to the Lord, even about the Bible. What, all that I'm asking us to consider is, what if instead of when we have confusion, when we have uh, frustration, when we have questions about the Bible, What if instead of assuming that the Bible is the one that's broken or outdated or useless right away, what if we considered the possibility that we are the ones who are broken? Like, here's what I mean. If you read the Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
Jesus is questioned over and over again about the scriptures. He's questioned over and over again about things that he said concerning the scriptures. And never once does Jesus put the blame on the word of God. Never once does Jesus say, you know what? Yeah, super, it's, it's, it's outdated. Ah, uh, yeah, it's useless. Don't ignore that, you know. Never once. Instead, Jesus always puts the onus on the readers and the hearers of the word. Over and over again, you'll read Jesus say, have you not read the scriptures? He'll say, oh foolish ones, oh dull of heart. He'll say, your tradition blinds you. And so this morning, as we kick off this series in the Bible, I just want us to consider the possibility that, that some of our confusions and our frustrations and our questions, what if some of those source from our own arrogance or ignorance or traditionalism or nationalism or naivety or, or tribalism or dullness or sin or fear or opposition to God or maybe because the Bible was never intended to answer the question that we're asking. What if our questions and confusions and frustrations do nothing to change the fact that the Bible is a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus? A word from God that is trustworthy and authoritative. So when the Bible challenges our deeply held beliefs, which it will, we kind of have two choices. And oftentimes, I think in our day and age, we, we choose the first option. The first option is we can challenge the Bible. The second option, the one that I'm asking us to consider this morning is, we let the Bible challenge us. When the Bible challenges our deeply held beliefs, and believe me, it will, no matter who you are, we have two choices. We can challenge the Bible or we can let the Bible challenge us. Now, some of you, this is really hard. You're having a hard time dealing with this. And if that's you, you're like me. You're in company. I don't know if it's good company, but it's company. You're like me. I... I've dealt with this my whole life. I've wrestled with this my whole life. Listen, I love the Bible. I love it. I love to teach it. I love it so much, I was part of this thing called Bible Bowl as a kid. It's like the brain game, but like Bible. Like it's the nerdiest thing ever, right? I studied the Bible in undergrad. I studied the Bible in grad school. I love the Bible, but I also never want to be wrong about it. And I also really like to feel like I've sort of figured it out, like I've sort of mastered the Bible. And for most of my life, and I don't think I'm alone on this, when the Bible has sort of ruffled some of my feathers, my first instinct has always been to pick up those feathers, put them back on, and tell the Bible why it shouldn't do that anymore. Rather than consider the possibility that those feathers were never supposed to be there in the first place. But if the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, and if we trust Jesus, Jesus thought that, so we should also think that, then when the Bible ruffles some of our feathers, shouldn't our first instinct, shouldn't our first question be to say, huh, I wonder why I care so much about those feathers. I wonder what God is trying to say to me right now. And some of you are like, bro, you lost me with the feather thing. Okay, so <laughs> here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I think some of us, many of us, including myself, have a desire to impose our own authority, the things we believe, the life we think we should have, onto Jesus and to God's word. 
rather than letting Jesus and God's word impose its authority onto us. So when the Bible challenges our deeply held beliefs, we have two options. We can challenge the Bible, or we can let the Bible challenge us. And that's really what I want us to hear this morning. But before closing, I think I have to acknowledge something. Because I think that there are some of us sitting in the room here this morning, who for the last little while now, have been thinking, yes, Austin, get them. The Bible needs to challenge the way that they think about this thing or that thing. And maybe that's true. But the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) And it probably wants to challenge you in some way too. Check out what Hebrews 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says, the Bible, what the Bible says about the Bible, it says this, for the word of God is living or alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And if I'm going to be honest, I think that some of us sitting in the room here saying, yeah, Austin, get them. We want the Bible to be living and active in other people's lives, but more like dead and passive in our own life. Like we're like, yeah, yeah, get them. The Bible needs to challenge them. And and you know what? When I think about myself, I I think the Bible's really kind of done with me. You know, it did what it needed to do. I got it kind of figured out. You know, I don't have any problems with it. It doesn't have any problems with me. I read it every day and it's awesome. And I just want to say it. If you've been engaging with God's word on any consistent basis, a few times a week at least for the last six months to a year, and you haven't once felt challenged by the word of God, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And I don't know what. That's a whole other message. But I'd love for you to consider and ask God, God, what's going on? The Bible is a library of books both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus, a word from God that is trustworthy and authoritative, living and active. And so over the next month, as we engage with this beautiful book, I'd love for us to try this on for size. That when we feel confusion and frustration, when we have questions and our gut instinct, everything in us is to challenge the Bible, I'd love for us to just try the second option. Just try it on for size and let the Bible challenge us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the the good and the beautiful ways that you have chosen in your grace to come down and to, to relate to us. Thank you that you've given us this word, this library of books that's human and divine, a a collaboration that helps lead us to you, Jesus, a word from you that's trustworthy and authoritative, living and active. Holy Spirit, we're just asking that you come as we respond in worship. Would you give us the courage, the peace, and the humility to let your word impose its authority on us, to let your word challenge us rather than the other way around. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. We're going to respond in worship this morning by singing a song that we're going to sing throughout this series. A song that helps align our hearts with this idea of of allowing God's word to speak 
and to challenge us and for us to move into a space of humility and trust. So let's respond in worship this morning.